This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your Friday Bucket Talk. We're getting it up here late because we were waiting for the official word that Brian Hardline was going to be named Ohio State's offensive coordinator. We wanted to react to that, so we're going to do that. This will take you through the weekend. You have plenty of time to listen to it. We'll get to rants later in the podcast from our tech subscribers. But we'll start off this one. And again, sometimes I ask for the rants and then I don't get to them for a little bit. So we actually had a rant. Uh, about this idea. It's from our guy Tanner from Newark, Ohio. Hey guys, longtime listener, texter a few times. I don't really have a rant. I just want to get an opinion with the current headline with the Buckeye football fans being Ryan Day may give up play calling. Do you believe that Brian Hartline could get the nod and become the play caller? With his amazing receivers he brings in and makes the Buckeyes wide receiver you, I think he could implement a scheme to fit the amazing receivers. The experience may or not be there, but he's a current receiver coach and it would just make sense to me. So Brian Hartline as, head co- as offensive coordinator, I think is not a surprise, right? Kevin Wilson is off to Tulsa. Kevin Wilson's held that title. The release did not say play caller. And that report from Kirk Herbstreet a couple days ago that Ryan Day was thinking about giving up play calling, I would guess, and this is a guess, this is not, I have not talked to anybody about this. My guess is that with this revelation Ryan Day will be the play caller, and this could be wrong by the time you hear it. Buckeye talk. Ryan Day will be the play caller in 2023 and perhaps groom Brian Hartline to take over in 2024. So if you guys have not read my story about being inside the offensive staff room with Ohio State, which I sat in, it was the Maryland week, and I sat in on a Tuesday night as the offensive staff watched film uh, for two and a half hours. And I sort of watched them do it and how they broke down practice and who said what and how they formed this game plan. Because they they come up with a script and they then set a script for practice of the plays that they think they want to run that week. They practice them. They analyze how they practice them. And they come back out and um, then analyze what that practice looked like. The headline of the story is Inside the Ohio State Offensive Game Plan, How the Buckeyes Scheme to Beat the Nation's Best Defense. So I released that really oddly and lately, right before the playoff semifinal against Georgia, so it may have gotten past you. But I got to see how these guys operate in there, and I got to talk to people about it. And so my understanding of how this worked a lot was 
when it was the pairing of Ryan Day and Kevin Wilson, and they were paired since Ryan Day got here. They were hired together in the offseason after 2016. They started off as the offensive coordinators. They were, they were co-offensive coordinators in 2017, and then, then Ryan Day got the offer in the offseason from the Tennessee Titans after 2017. Mike Vrabel wanted him to come be the offensive coordinator. And as we've covered, Ryan Day said no. He hired Matt LaFleur instead. Matt LaFleur was the offensive coordinator for the Titans for one year, then got hired to be the Green Bay Packers head coach. So that's the world where Ryan Day could have been the Packers head coach if he had gone to Tennessee and done as good of a job. So Ryan Day got a boost in 2018. He got a million dollars a year, and they made him the offensive coordinator. So it's one of those things where they started off as co, and then Ryan Day was called the offensive coordinator, and Kevin Wilson was still the co, which is like, how can I only have one co? But Ryan Day was the play caller since he got here. But Kevin Wilson was right there. That's 17 and 18. Then Ryan Day takes over as head coach in 2019, and Kevin Wilson becomes the offensive coordinator. So 19, 20, 21, 22, Kevin, Day, Kevin Wilson's the offensive coordinator. Now Ryan Day's the play caller, and he's the head coach. It's Ryan Day's offense. And everything is Ryan Day's offense. It's Ryan Day's concepts. It's Ryan Day's schemes. There's Chip Kelly in there. There's Urban Meyer in there. There's Kevin Wilson in there. There's what Ohio State did before Ryan Day got here. There's part of that. And they have all these concepts, and each week they pick out what they want to use. They aren't making up new stuff. They're tweaking, but they know what they want to be. They know how they want to do it. But in watching the interaction, Ryan Day is real, obviously, he's a pass-first guy. He's been a quarterback. He was a quarterback in college. He's been a quarterback's coach. He just comes to offense from a passing lens. doesn't mean he doesn't want to run the ball or doesn't understand running the ball. Of course he does, but he's pass first. Kevin Wilson, Kevin Wilson was an offensive lineman when he played football. He was an offensive line coach. He also went on to coach quarterbacks, but he has a greater foundation in line play and in the run game. So when they when they were paired like that, it wasn't strictly your area, my area, but Ryan Day leaned pass, and I think Kevin Wilson leaned run. So when they had those conversations, you're sitting in there watching film with those guys, Ryan Day is sort of leading the pass game conversation, and then Kevin Wilson is very involved in the run game conversation. Doesn't mean Ryan Day's not, but, but Kevin Wilson's voice becomes louder there. So now in this world, Brian Hartline's coming at it from a pass game perspective. Brian Hartline had a pass game coordinator title this year. Now he's going to be the offensive coordinator. So, But he and Ryan Day are going to come at it from a similar lens. So I think that means Ryan Day has to step back a little bit because Ryan Day can't be, as like I think, a thousand percent as assertive in the pass game when his co-pilot has the same expertise. So I just think by the idea that this is Brian Hartline's experience, I think Ryan Day, without giving up play calling, could and will take a step back anyway. Now, that is, again, that is my evaluation of a two and a half hour meeting and how things work. The other thing that happened is they elevated Ryan uh, Justin Fry, the offensive line coach, to run game coordinator. Now, Tony Alford had that title last year, and now Justin Fry does. And Justin Fry was very involved in the run game conversation when I was in there. And Ryan and Justin Fry at UCLA before he came to Ohio State had an offensive coordinator title. But again, that's Chip Kelly. That's Ryan Day's mentor. He's the head coach at UCLA. Justin Fry has that connection. Justin Fry is an offensive coordinator who's not a play caller. So I do think... This now, to me, creates a world where the dynamic in shaping Ohio State's offense is Ryan Day at the top. My guess is, for this year, still the play caller. My guess. My guess. My guess. With Brian Hartline, loud voice in the pass game. Justin Fry, loud voice in the run game. Where Kevin Wilson had a, had a loud voice in that run game, too, right there with Justin Fry. Tony Alford, also a voice in the run game. And then Ryan Day can watch that, let that work itself out, 
And then my guess would be maybe Ryan Day hands over play calling to Brian Hartline in 2024. I would be surprised when Ryan, when Kirk Herbstreit said Ryan Day is thinking about giving up play calling. That, to me, that happens right now in 2023 if he's hiring Garrett Riley. Now, let's just do a little side detour. Other people are not satisfied. TCU, Garrett Riley was his offensive coordinator, Lincoln Riley's younger brother. He got hired by Clemson this week to be Clemson's new offensive coordinator. After Tony Elliott and Jeff Scott had been co-coordinators there for a long time, Jeff Scott left a couple years ago. Tony Elliott left last offseason to be the head coach of Virginia this year. Brandon Streeter, who had been the quarterback's coach for a long time, had been Deshaun Watson's quarterback's coach. He got elevated to offensive coordinator. He got fired. And they fired him because they had a ready-made guy waiting. And Dabo Sweeney went out and got Garrett Riley. That is probably the best offensive coordinator hire you could make this offseason. Of available guys, it's equivalent to the Jim Knowles hire for Ohio State at defensive coordinator last year. Garrett Riley got to the national championship game. Dabo Sweeney went and got Garrett Riley. The other thing that happened is Pete Golding, the Alabama defensive coordinator, just happened to leave to become the Ole Miss defensive coordinator. Guess what? You don't happen to leave to go from Alabama to Ole Miss. Just like Ed Warner, when he left Ohio State, did not happen to leave Ohio State to go to Minnesota. So Pete Golding, they didn't announce it as a firing, but Nick Saban decided that wasn't good enough anymore. So Nick Saban's going to go look for a new defensive coordinator. People float names. You know who's a good defensive coordinator who's out there? Jim Leonard. The guy who was a defensive coordinator at Wisconsin, then was the interim head coach, and thought he was going to get the job, and then Luke Fickle got the job. So Alabama's not satisfied. So Clemson and Alabama are in a similar place to where Ohio State was a year ago, where they're going to bring in a big-time, big big-name, big-money coordinator to fix something that they don't think is good enough. So Clemson did it offensively, and Alabama's going to do it on the defensive side of the ball. If Ryan Day had decided that, Ryan Day, when Ryan Day, when Kirk Herbstreit reports, Ryan Day's thinking about giving up play calling. If Kevin Wilson leaves and they hire Garrett Riley, Ryan Day's not calling plays anymore. You can't, you're not going to get Garrett Riley if you don't let him call plays. So if Ryan Day had decided, I'm going to give this up and I'm going to go outside, then he's done. He's not the play caller anymore because you can't get somebody of that quality. If you had decided, you know what? I want a Knowles like hire. I still believe in my offense. I believe in how we do it, but I'm going to step back. We're going to make a Knowles-like hire here. Then Ryan Day can't be play caller. Instead, he's stuck with known quantities. And Brian Hartline has worked his way up. Brian Hartline is one of the best assistants in college football. Brian Hartline is ready for this. But I don't think that means that you give a guy who has never called plays at any level play calling duty right now. Right now. Because again, just it was one day when I was in there, Kevin Wilson and Ryan Day really ran the show. Of course, Brian Hartline has contributions, but it was pretty clear. Brian Hartline was not one of the top two guys in that room. Now he will be. So in that offensive meeting room now, who are the two loudest voices going to be? It's going to be Ryan Day and Brian Hartline, head coach and offensive coordinator. And then Justin Fry is going to be right there as the run game coordinator. And then, of course, everybody else contributes. And by the way, they really like Keenan Bailey. Keenan Bailey has ideas. So that's my guess. I don't think... I don't think as much as you guys, everybody loves Brian Hartline, right? You guys are excited about Brian Hartline. You don't want to lose Brian Hartline. I don't think Ohio State can have a guy who's been a position coach, never been an offensive coordinator, never been a play caller, and say, now call all the plays. But I think if he's now an offensive coordinator for one year and Ryan Day gets him ready, has that in his head, gives up more and more and more power in that room, 
let's Brian Hartline blossom. Let's Brian Hartline develop his voice. Let's Brian Hartline develop his ideas. Because the guy who's calling the play on Saturday has to be the guy during the week who's leading the discussion. Because you're shaping it as a staff, but it's going to come down to you making those calls. So you've got to lead that discussion as well. I think eventually it makes sense for Ryan Day to be less involved in that discussion. But I think my guess, guess, nobody else was in that room. No other reporters were in that room. So it's a decently educated guess, is that you get a one-year grooming period here. And if I'm betting money on this now that gambling is legal in Ohio, my bet is Ryan Day calls plays in 2023. Brian Hartline calls him in 2024. That's my guess. We'll see if that happens or not. Okay. So that was the big news. That's why we're late. You have all weekend to listen to it. We'll be back with a market down Monday thing on Monday. And then, by the way, we're going to take most of next week off unless there's like huge, gigantic news. We just need a break. And we already recorded the Monday podcast. So we'll we'll remind you again then. We just need a break. So that's what we'll do. But for now, we'll take a quick break. Not a long one. A quick break here on Buckeye Talk. When we come back, we'll do rants right after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, let's get back to some more rants here. This one's good from the 585. This is a soft rant, more of a navel-gazing observation. We love navels. The Ohio State football game I'm the most excited about every year, considering happiness and positivity, is actually the first game of every season and not the Michigan game or a playoff game. I'm so nervous and anxious for the Michigan or playoff games that it does take away some enjoyment. But the first game of the year every year is all good vibes and Ohio State football love. I get eight months of anticipation with pods, articles, and analysis, and it's also fun to see the culmination of off-season roster and scheme changes. I think that's that's hope springs eternal, right? Which is part of why I love the spring game. Because I think the spring game is like a, it's like an exhibition game. It's like a preview of the first game. So that idea of we've been writing, we've been talking, we've been learning, we've been analyzing through the entire spring, and then you get to see some stuff on the field. I think the first game of the year is in a continuation of that. Now, they, the Big Ten's been, I would almost be curious, we'll do a poll, we can do a survey on this this summer and a pot on it. What's your ideal first game? I know Gene Smith didn't love opening with Notre Dame last year, which is why Notre Dame's going to be game four this year, because I think in an ideal world, Ohio State does not want to play its big non-conference matchup in week one. They'd rather play it in week two or three. They'd rather have a week one game that feels like a warm-up. And this year, that is going to be, and it's been it for several years, because they like using Ohio State as TV fodder. And so this is how they do it. And they make Ohio State go on the road and be on TV in week one in a Big Ten game. So two years ago, it was at Minnesota, right, to open the season. This year, it's going to be at Indiana. And it was Indiana a couple years ago, too. At Indiana on a Saturday night, September 2nd, will be the opener. But I like that idea, right? All the positivity. And then my advice would be, well try to maintain that hopeful, optimistic, early season positivity, even as the season progresses. But I, I get I get where you're at. I like I like that idea of that wonderful 
uh, first game of the year. And I like how this schedule breaks down for Ohio State, that it's Indiana. Youngstown State in week two is going to be terrible. I, I mean, I guess I get it. That's that's I, I, We thought they weren't dipping down into that anymore um, to play an FCS team. So I guess there's not that big of a difference between an FCS team and a MAC team unless they're playing a really, really good MAC team. So they're going to play one of those games every year. So that, And then Western Kentucky has a chance to be interesting in week three and then week four at Notre Dame. All right, from the 269, I guess I have a positive rant. We're going soft. We're going positive. See, look at us. We'll get the toxic later. Don't worry. We'll get the toxic. I don't even know if this is a rant. It's about Kyle McCord and next year's team. I am feeling extremely positive about next year, although I'm still really disappointed about the Georgia loss. The college season is long, and there's so little margin for error that it is so painful when you get that close. But anyway, with the returning skill players on offense coming back and the core of the defense back, I feel like we don't need to ask Kyle to be something that he is not for us to compete for a title. If he is a ball distributor like Mac Jones and limits mistakes, I think it could be a special year. Having that elite quarterback helps tremendously, but Bennett and Jones have won the last few titles, and they don't even compare to Stroud, in my opinion. That's Stetson Bennett and Mac Jones. Focus on the super elite talent elsewhere and be consistent, and we have a good shot. I don't think that's wrong either. But I think you're saying that with a five-star. And I do think it could look a bit, well, not exactly. Here's the thing. We had talked about this on a pod the other day. It's like you're not going to lean into the run game because you still have to get the ball to Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Buka and Cade Stover and Julian Fleming. Those are still your moneymakers. So the quarterback, you're not going to run the ball because you have a young quarterback. You're going to need that, that quarterback to distribute to the most dynamic playmakers in the country. So that is true. But can you make them easy throws? Can you make them quick throws? You know, sometimes those deep shots down the sideline, those aren't tough throws. It's kind of a do or die throw at the bucket. You know, it's incomplete. You're not worried about throwing in the middle of the field over a linebacker in front of a safety. Again, that middle of the field throw, sometimes you make that easy money. You got the arm strength. You make, you have those easy money outs that Justin Fields made money on. Sometimes, though, you have to be a threat. But I, you know, elsewhere to create those easy money outside throws. But I think like in 2019, Justin Fields didn't throw in the middle of the field a lot early on as they were figuring it out. So maybe, you know, much of next year, you don't make those middle of the field throws where it gets a little more crowded. You can do things where you're not asking a new starter to diagnose as much. And you can just, it doesn't mean throwing bubble screens, but you can get guys the ball more easily. And I so, so I do think that idea, but there may be a, some comparison between what Michigan did with J.J. McCarthy this season, and then by the end, they opened it up, and we saw what he did against Ohio State against broken coverages, but they threw it more. Maybe, again, by by November, the Ohio State starting quarterback is ready for more. But I think you can do a lot early on with easier throws. And what more could you ask for? What more could you ask for for a young quarterback, right, to have those guys to throw to? So I think that's good. I think that's smart to feel good about that. This one, of course, I was going to pull from the 419. Is it just me? It's our guy Zach in the 419. Or has Court Williams been totally forgotten about? We were all so excited to see what he could become this year, and it feels like it turned into a Taraji Mitchell 2021 type of letdown. Is it really just injury-related, or has he not developed how everyone hoped it would be so he hasn't earned him playing time? Thanks for the great, great season of coverage, Zach, from the 419. So it was an injury, real injury. I was over hanging out at the team hotel one of the, to- one of the days uh, in Atlanta, just sitting around, just wanting to be in the mix, just sick of being around media. 
and just was sitting in one of the side lobbies because they were in a tower. So there were all these floors. You could sit at the base of the escalator and guys would just have to go up and down floors. So it's like, oh, here comes a coach. Here comes Mark Pantone. Here comes players saying hello. And Court Williams came through. And so clearly Court Williams had not been there right away when the team got there, but he still has this giant contraption on his arm. So he it is an injury situation with Court Williams. But I think in the preseason, if you would have said, I, I think these were like our driving the bus guys, right? Stephen Means driving the bus for Marvin Harrison Jr. Correct. Nathan Baird driving the bus for Mike Hall. Not quite as correct as Marvin, because how could you be as correct as being correct on Marvin Harrison Jr.? But pretty correct. At his, at his peak, pretty correct. And I think I was driving the bus from Court Williams, and it was wrong because Lathan Ransom did it instead. So if we were in a world where it was like, hey, Ronnie, Ronnie Hickman and Josh Proctor as these two safeties, this and that, and then Lathan Ransom just took Josh Proctor's job and just took his snaps. When's the last time we talked about Josh Proctor? Lathan Ransom just took over. So that, so Lathan Ransom, I should have been driving the bus for Lathan Ransom. Now, you know, he had some not great plays, but he also had, a, he also made a lot of plays. He was a little bit of a boom bus guy, but he was out there. And that was the guy that Jim Knowles was talking about. And so I was off. I should have been, if I wanted to, to get on the drive the bus for a young safety, I should have been driving it for Lathan Ransom, not Court Williams. So the thing that's difficult is when you, so this was at the beginning Lathan Ransom, more in the mix than Court Williams. If we thought there were four guys, Court Williams was clearly, you know, Ronnie Hickman, Court Williams, Josh Proctor, Lathan Ransom. It's it's Lathan Ransom who took a job Court Williams didn't. So that Court Williams had that opportunity early and did not do what Lathan Ransom did. And then the injury was real. So I don't know that you forget him. I wouldn't forget him. It was injury related, part of it. But sometimes when you get hurt, you get passed. And now who are we talking about safety? We're talking about Sonny Styles. So Ronnie Hickman's gone. Lathan Ransom's back. Sonny Styles is coming. Tanner McAllister's gone. There's some opportunity around. I would not discount Court Williams. I would not completely forget about him. I still, there was a part of the back of my mind that I still not, not 100% sure he's not a linebacker. But in the end, I think he, it's possible he just may wind up as one of these guys who the injuries just got in his way. He didn't a thousand percent sees a job in the tiny window that he had. And so maybe it just doesn't happen. But but clearly, so my point is I'm sitting in the lobby, Court Williams shows up and guys are saying hello to Court Williams kind of like midweek because this guy's injured, like he wasn't here right away. Everybody was happy to see him. He was right in the mix. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with Court Williams other than being injured, right? I mean, like he's a full part of the team, but it was a reminder of like, this guy, he's just an injury situation, right? He's just an injury situation. Okay, so I was wrong. I was certainly worse than Nathan and Steven when it came to driving a bus this year. My my bus driver's license has potentially been revoked. I'm not we know that I'm no I'm not allowed to build houses on an island. We know that. We don't have to discuss why, but if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know I've had some trouble with islands, but I didn't I I was the least successful bus driver this year for sure. All right, let's talk young receivers. People always like talking young receivers. From the 419, not a huge rant. It's Alex in North Baltimore. Not a huge rant, but I was at least somewhat surprised by how little impact the freshman wide receivers had on this season. It certainly would have been nice in the semifinal game if someone like Antwi or Brown or Burton would have been ready to go so we could have played them. Also, I know Fleming has dealt with injuries in his career, but man, it's still surprising to see Javier Johnson 
outperform them. So I, Xavier Johnson's a baller. I, I think we, you don't have to um, think that someone else is not doing their job to, to when you're wondering why Xavier Johnson played the role he did. I mean, it just, he's just a baller. He just does the right thing all the time. So, I mean, in the end, with when Marvin Harrison Jr. was out, they're playing three receivers. They're just they're putting Xavier Johnson in the Marvin spot and playing Marvin, Emeka, and Julian. So Julian's still there. Um, but talk about the young receivers, right? This is uh, another question about young receivers. I know Brian Hartline's the best receiver coach in America, but I haven't stopped thinking about this lately. In 2021, we got Jackson Smith and Jigba, Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave, three first-round receivers. It made complete sense that these three guys would get all the most important snaps. But had we rotated Marvin and Emeka into normal games, just for 10 to 15% of those snaps, I have to imagine both Marvin and Emeka would have been a little further along in their development in 2022. Fast forward to 2022. Marvin and Emeka early in the season got all the game reps so they could catch up on their development um, once JSN went down. But because they needed those reps... um, None of our young guys really played meaningful snaps. Now at the end of the year, Marv goes down and we have no other game-ready receivers. The short here is that we don't need to go back to a wide six-man wide receiver rotation, but I think we should be rotating young guys into game action more frequently than we currently do, especially once we have a two- or three-touchdown lead against an inferior opponent since Day won't run the full offense and develop guys once the game is in hand. So the thing with... So if we want to tie this a little bit to the discussion we had in the middle of the year about why Kyle McCord wasn't playing more, so part of the issue there was when you put in Kyle McCord with the twos, they usually were putting Kyle McCord in with the twos. So when they put Kyle McCord in, they are putting the backup receivers in. They're putting the backup offensive line in. And the backup offensive line was so young because there wasn't great depth on the offensive line. They were worried about running the full offense with Kyle McCord because they didn't want anyone to get hurt. And then while you could put in McCord and, and run the first team offense with the backup quarterback, which I was in favor of, but then... You're also kind of keeping other guys in the game longer. You're keeping the first string receivers and first string offensive line in the game longer than them. What if they get hurt while they're in their playing with Kyle McCord? So I still think they could have worked it better, but that was their thinking. So late in games, I think it was mostly the young offensive line that kept them from running full stuff with McCord and the backup receivers, but the backup receivers weren't then. This is overall, I don't know if that was worth explaining. This is overall a discussion that we kind of do have a lot of, do you just want to play your best guys? Like your best guys ready, play your best guys, or do you want to put guys in? And I feel like kind of a lot of the time we actually come around, I'm like, just play the best guys. Like that's why the best guys are there, play the best guys. So I think, and Steven has pointed this out before, when it comes to this particular freshman receiving class, if we want to drill down on these guys, right? This year, Caleb Brown, 22 total snaps, according to PFF. Kojo Antwi, 26 snaps. Keon Gray, 16 snaps. It's possible that that is just a reflection, not that they're not good players, but they just weren't really ready for more than that. And I do think next year's receiver class may be ready for more than that. And that when we are having this discussion a year from now, I do think it's possible that Brandon Innes and Carnell Tate and Noah Rogers will have played more and that maybe this receiver class, not that it's not good, was just not quite 
there wasn't quite a Jackson Smith and Jigba as a freshman. There certainly wasn't a Garrett Wilson as a freshman who had a real role as a true freshman. Chris Olave, what he did late in his freshman year against Michigan. I don't know if it was philosophical. I think it might have been more this specific season and circumstance. And so I think they're not going to get back to a six-man rotation when you have first-round receivers. And if you don't have six first-round receivers, you can't rotate. And I know the texture said that's not what they're suggesting. But I th- my guess would be at least Brandon Innes and maybe more, maybe Carnell Tate, Noah Rogers. Those are three of the four top recruits in this incoming freshman class. The other guy's Luke Montgomery at tackle. Those three will play will play more than 20 snaps in 2023 when you look at the freshman receivers this year and nobody played more than 26 snaps. So I we're always on the lookout for philosophical changes. The way you think, does anything change? And I don't know if anything changed. And I think it might have been more specific to the moment. Let's do this because there's a reason behind this. This is Alec Ellen Boston. I have two rants. First, not so hot. You and uh, others have mentioned this on the pod. What is the point of having a special teams coordinator when the special teams never execute? So this is a Parker Fleming discussion. Continues to be a Parker Fleming discussion. He's a special teams coach. As we brought up, they might expand the coaching staff so it won't matter. I do think it's reasonable to wonder why they are expending a full staff position when you can only have 10 to have that when it feels like you're not getting banged for the buck on elite special teams play. So that was their first rant, Parker Fleming thing. This is the second. I think you should stop entertaining some of the truly, truly toxic rants that are submitted. A recent rants podcast was the worst podcast I think I've heard on Buckeye Talk, with so much of it being focused on so many negative and absurd takes by fellow texters. Do people really think Ohio State, Ohio State is going to start going 8-4 and 9-3 and, and three now? Like, what reality are we living in where that happens? Has Ohio State gone 9-3 and three in any season other than 2011 in the past 20 years? I feel like that type of toxicity shouldn't be in any type of public forum. I personally think the fans deserve some blame for the Michigan loss and the general tightness of the program in that game with that type of toxic rhetoric. So... I understand where you're coming from, Alec L. And I will say the reason I, because, you know, I choose these. You guys send in hundreds and I choose 20. So I control what we're going to talk about here. I love reading all of your stuff. And every single thing that a texter sends, if you want to be a texter, 614-350-3315, everything a texter sends goes in to the blender that is my brain and it gets stirred up and it affects how I view Ohio State. Because it's not just about how I view it. We are your representatives, so I want to know how you view it. And of course, how you view it should affect how we view it. Because we are your ambassadors. I would say the toxic stuff falls into what I believe is our job being your guide through the world. Especially through the the, the digital world. Through social media. Through what people are saying. So... That's out there. And so I would rather, I think we have to, not that I would rather, I think we have to acknowledge all points of view and then discuss them. And I think if you'll notice, most of the time when we talk about the toxic stuff, I say, well, that's a little too toxic. Not that I can't be toxic myself when appropriate, or maybe when inappropriate. Toxicity has its place. Buckeye talk. But we, we bring it up to 
refute it, shoot it down, soothe it, calm it, acknowledge it, and change the lens on it a little bit. So I just don't want to really ignore, other than F-bombs, I don't want to ignore any part of the discussion around Ohio State. So I think we bring it in. We say there are people, even if it's one person, there's a person Because you are self-selecting already as tech subscribers and as listeners to Buckeye Talk. You're self-selecting. If you're hearing this, you care a lot about Ohio State. Why would you listen to this podcast if you don't care a lot about Ohio State? So you're not a casual fan. You're a pretty loyal fan. You might be a Georgia listener. You might be a Michigan listener. I don't know. You're checking in. You might have come across us by accident. You might be looking for a food podcast. I don't know. Maybe you're French and you saw a guy's French last name and you thought it was a French podcast. It's not. So... Most of you have self-selected, you really like this team. And then you self-select at least a little bit of you are at least interested in how we talk about it. And I think we talk about it in a specific way, whatever that is, which is critical, trying not to be homers, willing to criticize, but wanting people to find the joy in football and holding Ohio State to a high standard, but also having... I don't know if reasonable expectations is the right, but contextual expectations. So you've self-selected to that a little bit. So if you're still, if there is what some people would view a toxic opinion about Ohio State within that self-selected group, it has it has value because it's not like a troll to me, right? It's not an internet troll. If there's some egg avatar on Twitter who's just a troll, I mean, I'm not gonna read that, right? But I think if you're texting. You're, you're by definition not a troll. So then it's like, okay, here's a person who is loyal, educated, dedicated. They've self-selected to be this, and they still think this. And, and it's not invalid. They think this. I don't want to say still. They think this. So by the for me, really, 99% of the time, if just by the fact that you are a texter, your opinion is valid. And just by the fact that you are a listener to this podcast, your opinion is valid. If you're some random person on Twitter who doesn't even have your real picture or your real name associated with a Twitter account, there's no reason for me to think that your opinion is valid. So if you're shouting at players or shouting at coaches or calling for people to be be fired, I'm not going to acknowledge that. But so Alec, in in this context, that's why I think it's, we do it, why I choose to acknowledge it, because even if people, other people might view it as toxic, it's, it's coming from a person who's invested and who's not hiding and who cares and is not a, you know, drop in. It's, this is a person who really cares about this. And so I think we have to, we have to consider every opinion about that. Let's talk about officials. I do not like talking about officials, but this is a good, a good idea from the 312. They need to do something with officials. It's time to centralize everything and remove the conference-based officials. Things need to be called and reviewed consistently. I know Joel Klatt talked about this on his podcast. It just makes sense. It removes the view of bias as well, that the Pac-12 favors the Big Ten and bowl games, for example. So in a normal, functioning NCAA, I mean, the NCAA at the moment is begging Congress again to solve all of its problems. Which again, it's like if I'm a legislator and it's like, okay, what are we talking about? We're talking about like Ukraine or whether the NCAA is in good shape. And we're talking about taxes or whether the NCAA is in good shape. And we're talking about, you know, keeping people healthy 
or whether the NCAA is in good shape. We're talking about democracy or whether the NCAA is in good shape. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like NCAA, like regulate yourself. And so a functioning NCAA, we should have some centralized officiating, right? But it's this is goes back to it's a regional sport that has become a national sport, but it's still regional in many ways. So can you imagine if it was like, oh, it's a it's an AFC North team in the Super Bowl against an NFC West team in the Super Bowl. So that means we're going to have AFC East officials. It's drunk. It makes no sense. But it's hard to centralize, right? 130 teams playing football. You should be able to centralize the Power Five. And this is one of these things sometimes when you talk about if you got to a smaller group of teams where you had an agreed-upon way of doing business and centralized regulation, then you could have stuff like this. It's like, well, we just have officials. We don't have conference officials. We have everybody who's playing at this level agrees to you know, go by these guidelines and these rules on and off the field. Then we have our own officials. So it is stupid, but it's not the most stupid thing that the NCAA does. It is just one of the stupid things that the NCAA does. So I guess that means for now... We still have to live with it because guess what? Congress isn't going to worry about it. Oh, what should we do? It's like, hey, should we send more tanks to Ukraine? It's like, well, you know what? The NCAA had this question about officiating. Should we help them first? God, the NCAA is stupid. From the 813, here's my rant. Most of the fan base is ecstatic that we played the number one team in the country and defending national champs to the very end and lost on a last second field goal. While I agree that Ohio State came to play and showed everyone they can play with anyone in the country, is this program now reduced to moral victories? I hate to be that guy, but at the end of the day, we should be winning these games. I think both things can be true, but it just feels like there's an acceptance of playing well enough and losing, which in my opinion, Ohio State should be better than that. I know it's arrogant, but that should be the expectation. Am I off base from the 813? So this is something that I talked about on a pod and I texted about it the other day. And I expanded my view because I had been talking about Ohio State since 2005 because that's when I started and 2004 had been a reset year. But really, there's no reason to go back, not to go back to 2002. So I went back to 2002. So in the last 21 years, I did top six finishes in the last 21 years. And Ohio State has 17 top six finishes in the last 21 years. It is by far ahead of everybody else. But I get... A top six finish, that can feel like a moral victory conversation. So this is someone talking about moral victories. You don't, don't want moral victories. So let's talk about championships. Since 2002, and again, that's going to favor Ohio State. It's an Ohio State dividing line. We could go back in the BCS era to when they really started having definitive national champions. We can do that as well. But let's just do this for now. 2002, last 21 seasons, titles. Okay, titles. Alabama, six. LSU, three. And it's funny to think about LSU. There's a Saban title. There's a Les Miles title. There's a Coach O title. So it's like there's not been, there's been like a lot of dips and lulls in there and ups and downs. LSU is like, has some frequently high peaks, but they hit some low spots along the way. They are not consistent. But when they peak, they can peak as high as anybody. So it's Alabama 6, LSU 2, and then there's multiple teams tied with two titles. So in the last 21 seasons, Ohio State has the third most titles. So like, is that a program that only is dealing in moral victories? To me, no. <laughs> like, you're you're close more than anyone. You have 17 top six finishes in the last 21 years. No one can touch that. So you have the most moral victories. Ohio State football, we lead the nation in moral victories. If you want to buy a shirt that says that, feel free. But 
you're also third in actual victories, in championships, in the things that, that, that are not moral, that are real. So I don't know. Is, it, is that like not good enough? That Bama's Bama and Saban's Saban. And then LSU has three, and then like Ohio State, Clemson, Georgia, USC, those schools have two. Is that not, is that a failing? So it's one of those things where it can feel like, and again, it's said here on this podcast sometimes, well, they haven't won a title in eight years. It's like, okay, well, I don't know. Like how many titles are you, how many titles are you supposed to win? So that's kind of my answer to the moral victories that Ohio State is third in actual titles in this era since since they trusselfied. So is that not enough? I don't, I, you know, if you think, well, they should be tied, we well, should at least be second behind Bama. It's like, okay, well, they're one away from that. They've been really close a bunch of times. So if you want to stack those up, we maybe the most moral victories. And again, moral victories is an interesting conversation because you can look at it as great or you can look at it as terrible. I have no interest in them or like, you know what? You know what? It's better than moral losses. I'll take a moral victory. All right, quick break. When we come back, we'll finish up some rants here on Buckeye Talk. All right, back with some more rants. Let's do one that relates to moral victories that I sh- that I should have added before. So we'll continue that conversation with our guy Frank and Hudson. I wanted to rant on this notion that the loss is okay because it was close. Well, I'm very proud of the way the kids played. They let a golden opportunity at a national title slip through their hands. It's not easy getting that close. People assume Ohio State will be back next year. That's not given. And while Ohio State is talented enough to get back, it's no guarantee. It reminds me of 2016 with the Guardian, the Indians back then, now the Guardians, whatever. Up 3-1 in the World Series and they blow it. Fans assumed they'd be back and they never got there. You have to capitalize on your opportunities. Ryan Day certainly needs to cash in soon. Counting Haskins, Day has had five straight seasons of first-round talent at quarterback and zero championships. So I actually think I disagree with that because I think you can assume they'll be back, which is kind of the whole point, which is why I keep saying things like 17 top six finishes in the last 21 years. They're always there. If there's one team... In sports right now, that's always there. It's Ohio State. So we always appreciate what you guys are saying. I'm not like yelling at Frank and Hudson, but I think the Guardians are a terrible comparison here. They're a small market team that has a lot of things against them. And I do now, actually, I do think in some ways when we have our Kings of the North conversation, we talk about Northern teams. I think sometimes I think of small market teams in Major League Baseball in a similar vein that you sort of have an inherent disadvantage on some level, right? But it's still not actually that because Ohio State has bucked that trend enough that what actually frustrates people is that Ohio State is always there and gets so close time after time and doesn't get over the top. So if that's your argument with Ohio State, I think like the facts would bear out. Okay, you're right. They're close a lot. 17 of 21 in the top six, two titles of those 17 times, right? Maybe you don't like that ratio. If your issue is you can't guarantee that you'll be back, I would point you towards 17 of 21. I would point you towards three playoff appearances in Ryan Day's four years. And I know, you know, they didn't get back to the playoff and they only made one playoff in, in Urban's last four years. But, you know, they were right on the edge a couple other times. Like, And in a 12-team world, they're always going to make the playoff. So that, I think, is not the argument. That they're there all the time and don't cash in, okay? 
You never know if you're going to be back. I just don't think it applies to Ohio State. All right, let's talk recruiting a little bit. You guys know I'm not the greatest recruiting expert in the world, but we'll do it anyway. This is uh, a rant that was sent in about, it was a screenshot from signing day of Ohio State ranking 10th in Ohio State, uh, Ohio State ranking 10th in ESPN's recruiting rankings. Ohio State recruiting is on a bad downward trend, 10th by ESPN. Knowles can't recruit and he can't coach. He can only BS. Well, seems, seems that's one of the toxic things that the uh, the other texters talk about. Why do you read those? We want to hear all opinions. Why do you read them? From the 330, it's Mike. How do you think the performance they put out there against Georgia will impact recruits, even if nothing changes with NIL? Any change at all? So, first of all, in the 247 composite rankings, which takes all the uh, individual sites into account, ESPN 247 rivals all those. You put them all together in the 247 composite. They were six this year. They were six in the most recent signing class, and part of that was they only had 19 guys. Their average star rating was third. So, like, we can't apply the downward trend quite yet. Now, as we talked about after signing day, there were some five stars that got away that they probably would have, they maybe signed, would have signed at least one or two of those in a pre-NIL world. But there's certainly not, maybe if you, okay, if I said you can't do, maybe slight downward trend, but they haven't fallen off a cliff yet. So 2024, I think is really important. They have three guys in right now. One's the number two player in the country, the number one receiver. One's a big time offensive lineman from Indiana. And one's a, a, a local kid, Garrett Stover, Cade Stover's cousin. So... I think like on alert for 2024, need to show something in 2024. What's the NIL effect in 2024? Got to get a big time quarterback in 2024. Yes, 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 yes. So maybe paying attention to Ohio State's recruiting class, like you always do, but with a little more trepidation, not just paying attention because it's great, because but paying attention because you're wondering. I think that's fair in 2024, but don't go too far that it's a, like it's a, disaster that's a problem yet or that it's a sure downward trend I, I don't think we're there yet i do think to the question about georgia georgia we said their offense was great we said their offense was a bigger problem going into the game we were right their their offense was great you couldn't stop them they're still a defense first program ohio state's an offense first program not everybody can go to georgia right not everybody wants to go to georgia even if you're from the south maybe you don't want to go to georgia where would you want to go next so someone told me that Paul Feinbaum on his program recently, the last day, maybe maybe on Friday, was asked like, who can who's Georgia's biggest challenger? And he said Ohio State right away. We talked about this in the College Football Survivor Show this week. Who's this? Okay, Georgia's the new king of college football. Who's the challenger? Ohio State. So Ohio State and Alabama, but in very different ways. So I think the pitch of look how good we are. We play right with the big guys. We're right there. Nobody can challenge the king like us. Help us get over the top. You're the difference. You make up that point. You five-star, if we had you, we would have beaten Georgia. Look where we were without you. We're right there. We have everything around you. You're the difference maker. Let's go. You be the guy to get us over the top. You don't want to go somewhere where they're already on top and you're just maintaining something. We haven't won a national title since 2014. People think we're disappointing. We're underachieving. You get us over the top. That works for me. I think that's a good pitch. Now, you got to deal with NIL and everything else, but like the pitch, the football pitch, will develop you for the NFL. We play the kind of offense you want to play. They've got to get this pitch to work on defense, too. They've got to get this pitch to work on defense because they're a little top-heavy with their recruiting right now on the offensive side. But that's a real pitch. And I do think that Georgia game mattered. The biggest spotlight went toe-to-toe. -to -toe. Look at our talent. 
Look at our coaching. Look at our support. Look at the way people talk about us and you get us over the top. So yeah, I think it should. Right? I mean, ideally, you've got you've got to be able to carry that stuff into what's next. You have to. And that's like a big question like with Michigan all the time. It's like, why can't they carry that in? Now, Michigan's trying to keep Harbaugh, right? This feels like maybe now the NFL stuff, it, maybe it's more of a contract negotiation than anything. Michigan's president put out a statement on Twitter, clearly getting involved. Maybe this is just Harbaugh stoking NFL interest to get everything he wants at Michigan. Because again, this is a guy who took a pay cut a couple years ago. So maybe what I certainly thought was like, this guy is very interested in leaving. Maybe it's just strategy. But but from a Michigan standpoint, from a recruiting standpoint, maybe they didn't capitalize on stuff after last season the way you thought they would. And Ohio State, I do think, needs to capitalize on this. And I think they should. I think they should be able to. Let's do some Ryan Day. Two rants here from the 513. I think the loss to Michigan may have really opened up Ryan Day's mindset. He put on a masterpiece against Georgia, and it was so evident he was coaching with nothing to lose. The true test will now be seeing whether or not he can sustain that in normal run-of-the-mill games as well as playoff games in Michigan. Also, his arc is shockingly similar to Kirby Smart's as a coach, in my opinion. They've both been right on the cusp before they got the big one, and Day is right there. Him considering giving up play calling is a further example. Excited for what the future with Day looks like. Drastically different than how I felt after Michigan. Also, this is another one of Parker <laughs> or Parker Fleming has to go. So that was another person. This was all from Ryan and the 513. So mostly I'm, I'm focusing on the day thing there. Also, we'll note the Parker Fleming. And this is Seth in Denver from the 559. Hey, y'all, Kirby Smart was ridiculed up and down for his first five years as head coach until he won in 21. He had the collapse against Bam in 2017 and the fake punt against Bam in the SEC title game, among many other things, including not figuring out offense for four seasons. We often forget Ryan Day as a first-time head coach, and you can't learn lessons you haven't lived through yet. I believe he is the guy. I think if he turns over play calling, the ceiling will just continue to raise. Defensive recruiting in 19 and 20 brought this team down, but has rebounded, and they are primed to be contenders for the foreseeable future. Thanks, that's Seth in Denver. Again, we talked about play calling earlier. I do think there... I can see the world... I'd love to get Ryan for a sit down and talk about this, some of this stuff. Whether it's in the future, whether it's this offseason, I can see Ryan Day saying things like, I learned a lot from our two losses this year, personally. Our program learned, but I also learned. And I will be very curious how those lessons are applied. But I think in particular, because the thing is, he doesn't want to be Jim Harbaugh. He doesn't want Ohio State to be Michigan. Ohio State doesn't want to be Michigan. And stylistically, Ohio State doesn't want to be Georgia. But from a success standpoint, from an out front standpoint, from top of the world, from where the big dog standpoint, Ohio State absolutely wants to be Georgia. They want to be Georgia in their own style. So you observe that up close because Saban, to try to observe Saban up close, I don't know what that does for you. And Dabo is just a different animal. Dabo does it like a very specific way. And I don't know that observing Dabo up close is going to get you a lot of places. But to observe, there's not a lot of difference. We've talked about it before. I, I totally agree with all the Ryan Day Kirby Smart comparisons in terms of their age, in terms of their trajectory as head coaches, in terms of what their early seasons looked like, in terms of what they learned, in terms of what got them over the hump. I think there's a gazillion things that Ryan Day can look at up close, see how Kirby Smart operates. Not that they, you know... He didn't get to go to practice, but I think there's a lot to that. And if anybody wants to continue to compare, now, all you got to do is win two straight. It's like, oh, Ryan Day, he's just like Kirby Smart. 
And then Kirby Smart won two straight. Well, that's what we're all saying. Well, maybe that's what you you can see why the trajectories match. And then, but if Ryan Day's in year nine and he hasn't won a title yet, then you're not Kirby Smart. But I think so far, I don't think there's anything on Kirby's t- trajectory that led him to where he is now that Ryan Day hasn't checked that box along the line, except Ryan Day had more playoff appearances than Kirby Smart in his first four years. So I, I agree with that. Now on the other side, Day needs to stop being outcoached in every big game. It's beyond annoying and needs to end from the 3-1-2. I really don't think he was outcoached. I think, um, you know, Kirby Smart called the timeout and stuff, but I think if you talk, you know, just the idea of, like, scheming it up, that kind of thing, what they did offensively, you know, if you want to talk, and you're responsible for everything as the head coach, so you can't only say, well, Jim Knowles needs to be better. Ryan Day is the head coach, so defense also stops with him, but I just, I don't think that, like, I don't think outcoached is is where you really go with that conversation. This is a more recent rant. Really wasn't even sent in as a rant, but I'm just grabbing it from a texture anyway from the 269. Obviously, I want our best players to play, but I'm starting to get concerned for a high-end young talent due to all the veteran players utilizing COVID years to come back for fifth and sixth years. I'm not sure if Tommy Eichenberg or Steel Chambers fall into the COVID year bucket, but this prompted my concern for CJ Hicks. If a guy with that talent doesn't get on the field in year two, I could see him transferring. So again, this is throwing stuff off. It's the idea that you you can't do one thing for a group of people without it affecting inadvertently another group of people. And it has inadvertently affected younger players on the come up when you extend these extra years for COVID to these older players who were around. So I am curious about what this means for CJ Hicks. And I do think CJ Hicks, if he's ready, needs to be on the field. They can't. They can't block potentially great players, young great players for very good older players. And Tommy Eichenberg was great this year. But as we noted on the College Football Survivor Show, Georgia's defense this year, five of their seven guys who led the team in snaps on defense were true freshmen or sophomores. Five of the seven. Now, it was a little bit of a reset year because they lost so many guys to the NFL draft. But Malachi Starks and Javon Bullard and... Uh, Dumas Johnson and Smail Mondin and all these guys, they were a lot of guys doing a lot of stuff as very young players. And you have to keep that window open. You have to. So I don't think that Tommy Eichenberg and Steel Chambers should eat up all of the snaps at linebacker next year the way they did this year. Because if they do, I'm going to think that something got a little off on the development track for C.J. Hicks as a five-star second-year player, or his development track was on and he was blocked, and the team blocked him too much. So open to change my mind on that. If it's like, you know what, I just didn't do this, everything's fine, year three or whatever, but this is this is something. And so it's not to be unappreciative of the talents of Tommy Eichenberg and Steel Chambers. But, you know, returning starters isn't always the best way to judge a team because you you do at any elite program. I think you need to leave room for opportunity for young guys. So I wouldn't freak out about it yet, but I'm. it's worth thinking about, I think. I think it's worth thinking about. From the 937... 
Trying to move forward, I can't fully do that because I can't stop thinking of coaches. Number one priority being putting players in your best position to succeed. Jim Knowles failed this test three straight games and has yet to display a real ability to change course and do what is best for the players he has. Instead of focusing on the battle of quarterback and offensive tackle, we should all be focused on Knowles because right now I don't believe in him and I worry the players may not either. That's Joe. So I think that remains near the top of the list of offseason questions. And... I think we saw, right, as we sort of detailed, I think they were less aggressive against Georgia than they were against Michigan. I think that was better. I think there were times where they didn't put guys in the best position. I think that's fair. And I do think Jim Knowles learned from this year. And sort of the the questions I had about you've never been with the program this talented before. What are you going to do? And then I almost think there were times where maybe he expected too much from the talent and it wasn't quite as good as he thought. And he wound up putting a lot of guys on islands that, or in one-on-one situations that maybe you needed a little more, a few more reinforcements there. So, I mean, if we were going to line up like issues, because I don't think quarterback is an issue because you figure somebody good is going to win it. Curiosity for sure. Because I do think it's a competition. You know, if Kyle McCord's the leader in the clubhouse, I don't think it's over. I do think it's a competition this spring with Devin Brown. Offensive tackle and... Making sure you put defensive players in their best position to succeed. I think those are the two things to have your eyes on the most this offseason and this spring. So from the Texter standpoint, I do I do completely uh, agree with that. We'll just do this because it's an oldie but a goodie from the 330. My rant is that I'm tired of everyone saying these college players need to get paid, especially you guys. If you look at it from the outside, they're supposed to be student athletes. There's only a small percentage that will ever make it to the pros. Yes, they're putting their bodies on the line, but they're also getting a free education and free training table food. So, again, an oldie but a goodie. They get swag. They get uniforms and shoes, top-of-line clothing. They get recognition and advertising, if you want to call it that, by playing on national television. That is invaluable if they are talented. That's why the NFL scouts see them. I don't have a problem with them getting NIL money for reasonable things, but blatantly paying these kids for playing football in college is not ideal. They are already making tens of thousands of dollars every year in benefits, and no one talks about that. And I would just say, would you be happy if you got paid in swag and food, or would you want a paycheck? And when the TV deals are as huge as they are... um, I think we're past the point of paying people with food. So uh, NIL, right? I still think NIL needs to be worked out. I don't think that every single player in the world should be able to do whatever they want to do at whatever point. It is not a pure free market. Competitive balance matters. So I think if you're blind to that, you're not paying attention exactly. But I, I just, I don't know. I think we're, you can't, in my opinion, like I'm never going to stop saying that players should make money and be paid because the TV deals, the schools are making so much money. And then you can pull back on swag and you could pull back on the other stuff because they're getting paid. So you don't have to give them as many free shoes or whatever, right? I mean, I just think it's, it's not a barter system, right? It's you have skills and you're taking risk and you're putting in time and then you're rewarded with money because your skills and your time and your risk creates money. So we're going to do more than give you classes, food, and shoes. We're going to actually pay you. So I don't know. I just think that's where a lot of people are. So if you're not there, that's fine. But like, I'm not going to stop saying that. Question about turf I think is reasonable. 
Good afternoon. Happy New Year. Some of these rants are a little old, sorry. Have you considered a podcast article or interview with Gene Smith and Ryan Day on the concern with Ohio Stadium and the WAC having the turf that the NFL Players Association once banned? This has come up. Ohio State has said they are evaluating it. This was a thing that came up late in the year. Tony Gordon asked about it in a news conference, and, and they did say they are investigating it. Ohio State installed um, this type of turf in June. Then it's the, the turf they installed is said to have higher rates of in-game injuries compared to all other surfaces when it comes to non-contact injuries and that kind of thing. The Buckeyes did appear to have more injuries this year and um, won't having this turf put Ohio State at a recruiting disadvantage. Thanks for your consideration. So this is a smart thing to bring up. It is on the list and it is an issue because it is a health and safety issue. And then health and safety, if it's not taken care of, becomes a competitive disadvantage issue because other schools will say this is a health and safety issue. So I would guess that Ohio State might change because normally I do think Ohio State's pretty reactive to this kind of thing. If this is an issue and the NFL is saying you can't, we're not going to have these turf fields, this type of turf is dangerous, studies show it, and NFL teams start pulling that turf out, then I think Ohio State will pull it out. If NFL teams don't pull it out, then I think Ohio State won't. But I think Ohio State will respond the way NFL teams respond because I think often in situations like this, Ohio State acts like an NFL team. But it is absolutely worthy of bringing up, and we will put it on our list of things to bring up. So thanks for bringing it to our attention. We'll wrap up with this. From the 614, I texted throughout the year wondering, if not now, when? trying to drill down what a championship season would look like for Ohio State if it's not this type of roster in a year without another dominant team. And despite them not getting over the top, I have to say I feel more confident in this program and its leadership than I did when I asked that question in October. Maybe I needed the broader context of Kirby Smart's career. Maybe I needed to actually see this team perform on the field against what is widely considered the best team in football. Maybe I just needed to hear national talking heads impressed with how this team reclaimed its pride and resolve after the most tumultuous month I can remember. Whatever the case, and I can't believe I'm saying this in a year when they lost to their rival and lost a playoff game, I consider this season a success. We all saw firsthand just how close this program actually is to becoming a proven champion, and it turns out it's just one point. We're no longer asking hypothetical questions about speed and toughness. We saw it. We were right there. Give this program another year or two to continue maturing. Give them another 2021-like recruiting class, and I know Ohio State will be able to claim its spot at the top of the mountain sooner rather than later. I will say, don't listen to national talking heads. Listen to us. And I kind of like don't. I'm not even joking with that. Sometimes I I, I understand um, nationally wanting that respect, but I mean, just honestly, a lot of times, right, when you're doing the whole nation, you just don't understand it as much as you do when you're doing a conference or a region or a particular team like we're doing. So I think we tried to shoot you straight on this team much of the year. You know, I was reading back again. I just, I go back. And I catch up. Sometimes I can't catch up right in the moment on all the text. And I go back and read stuff. And it's like people's yelling at us for being homers for CJ Stroud and Ryan Day. And it's like, we just, I think most of the season thought that this the game they played against Georgia was in there. When would they do it? And I thought, we thought they would and they did. And I think that Ohio State is the one that gives that texture and a lot of you confidence. And I think that Ohio State exists. And the idea of maybe the way this season transpired in the last month and a half and the last two games enticing Ohio State to reveal that version of itself more frequently, 
I don't think that's a crazy idea. So that's where we are. We'll end the rants there. I'll do another call out. Like this is still the final batch of sort of reacting to the end of the season rants. Now we're going to like take a breath. I know we have a lot of texts in there. I'm going to keep going through them. I'm going to keep reading them. I'm going to keep taking them in. And then we're going to keep sort of spitting the best ones out back here to you guys to help us understand where you think Ohio State football is. But we're officially, 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 officially into the offseason. That's the last batch of sort of in-the-moment rants that we'll do. We always appreciate you guys being part of it. Read cleveland.com slash OSU for now. I'm Doug Maurice. We'll catch you on Monday. And that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>